All right. Um, so continuing our study here in Ephesians, we're going to look at the content of Paul's prayer there. Any, uh, any things that weren't really covered by the questions that, that came to mind that you were thinking about from the passage? did listen to that sermon, by the way. Um, so, um, who was that? Vody Bakum, yeah. So, Vody Bakum, in a sermon that uh, Bob said, hey, you should listen to this, so I listened to, I think I listened to about three quarters of it, and then it froze up on me, and then I got busy with stuff. But uh, he was emphasizing this idea of adoption. Um, when we, so certainly there's legal aspects of what's taking place here in chapter one. Uh, this idea of being selected, being declared righteous, all of those sorts of things. But if we see it strictly as God as the distant, holy, righteous judge who condescends to us, there's also this theme running through the first part of chapter 1 about God adopting us and making us part of His family and granting us inheritance with Christ and all those sorts of things. And so it's not... I think sometimes because we're so careful that we don't want to make God out to be like the grandparent that's like, sure, you can eat the candy, and sure, you can run around. And I mean, those are your grandparents. I'm not trying to give you a hard time. But the reality is sometimes kids get to do stuff at grandpa and grandma's house that they don't get to always do at home, right? We know that. We kind of acknowledge that. So that being the case, we're, we're, we try to avoid that picture of God. And so then sometimes we come too far the other way, and we're like, God's just harsh and you know austere and you know, stern. And those things are, are true in the sense that God's character is consistent and he has to follow it and all that sort of thing. But God is also loving and gracious toward his people and that, that idea of adoption and that theme of the blessings that God's poured out on us in the first part of chapter 1, I think we don't want to miss. So I think that's a good point to make for sure. Anything else before we get to the questions here? All right, uh, first one there. When Paul says, for this reason, in verse 15, what do you think he's referring back to? thought along those lines? So, if you look at a commentary, it sometimes gets like really technical, like, 
this phrase is referring to this phrase in this verse, two verses before. And I think that level of detail is important in some cases because if we make it refer to the wrong thing, it changes the meaning of what's being said. But the reality is, and that's what I was trying to point out this morning, when Paul says, for this reason, and follows it up with, I've heard of your faith, he's tying, I think, back to like the main point he's making in verses 3 to 14, which is that God's done work in you, and I've also heard about that work that God's done in you, and so because of that, that leads to these other things that he's about to say. So, um, so that kind of leads us then to question two. What do you see as far as parallels between Paul's attitude toward the Ephesians and Paul's description of the Thessalonians? Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. There's a, there's a bunch of answers to this. It's not just one thing. Okay, thankful for them? Good. What else? Anything else that's similar between what he says there in 1 Thessalonians 1? Either about them or what he does toward them? Yes. Okay. Okay, giving thank giving thanks for them that their faith has become known. Um yeah, there's just if and if we had to sum up the attitude that we see both toward the Ephesians and toward the Thessalonians, I think it would be one of it, it's very much a positive attitude, right, that he has toward both of them and he's rejoicing with them for the work that God's doing in and among them. And I think we might set this in contrast, for example, with what we see at the beginning of, uh, like, 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians starts out, and he says, I'm thankful for you because of God's work in you. And then by the time he gets to verse 10, he's like, and guys, here's some things you've got to work on, right? He doesn't, he talks to the Ephesians about things, especially by the time we get to chapter 4, but he doesn't dive right into, and here's all the things that need to be sorted out the way he does with the Corinthian church. And so I think that the tone is generally positive toward the Ephesians, toward the Thessalonians, toward even the Colossians, in a way that it's not quite the same with the Corinthians. Though they are all four churches filled with saints, with believers. Okay? Um, what does Paul ask God to do for the Ephesians? Yes, Elise. Okay, good. Spirit of wisdom and revelation. So, what do you think that looked like? What would it have looked like for God to do this for them? Just from that phrase, not the next few verses, which we'll get to in a minute. But, but what would a spirit of wisdom and of revelation look like? Okay. Okay. And think about where they are in the unfolding of God's Word at this point in the history of the church. Um, think about specifically, like, in Corinthians, uh, Paul at length develops... Why don't we turn over there, because I think it would probably be helpful. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 14... Someone want to read for us 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 6? 
would love to do that for us. Evan, you got it? Okay, go ahead. And then he's going to say a little bit later in the chapter in verse 30, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. And uh, he then talks about the revelation that he had received from God in terms of the gospel in chapter 15. I make known to you, brother, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and which also you stand. So the reality is, in the early church there are still prophets, right? So we see examples of this in the book of Acts. There's a fellow named Agabus who says there's a famine who's going to come. He says that, I don't know, Acts 9, early, early on in the book of Acts. And then as Paul is getting ready to head back toward Jerusalem, Agabus prophesies again, says, Paul, you go down to Jerusalem, your hands are going to be bound, you're going to become a prisoner. So that's one example. We don't really have a ton of examples other than what we'll see later in the book of Ephesians that says... God gives apostles and prophets and so on and so forth to the church for the building up of the church. So this is being written at a point in time in which God is actually still granting revelation through prophets, giving specific knowledge by the ministry of the Holy Spirit through people in the congregation to the church as a whole. So... When he says a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, what then would that potentially have looked like in the Ephesian church? Potentially. So I just don't want us, because we are in a different spot in church history, I don't want us to rule that out when we see something like revelation we might be prone to say, well, that can only mean only the written Word of God. Because they were living in a time period in which it was not simply the written Word of God, but all of the things that God was saying and speaking to them. Now, um, uh, when he says wisdom and revelation, I think we have to keep in mind what James says. There's a wisdom that comes from God. There's a wisdom that comes from the earth. And so if the wisdom or the revelation that they are being granted contradicts other things that God had already revealed, they were supposed to discern the spirits and reject it out of hand. Yes? Not to go off on this rabbit trail, that's one of the things that always confused me, because if, if the prophecy was directed from God, right. it shouldn't have been written down. Okay. And so, it seems like we don't have much of any of those things written down, unless one of the people Yeah. 
So think about what, um, what John says about Jesus, right? Not everything that Jesus did was written down. Not everything Jesus said was written down. If we had heard it, would it have been profitable? Absolutely. Jesus is God's Word speaking the Word of God, right? So anything He said would have been profitable and it would not have been a bad thing for us to have. Are we, are we missing out? I mean, that's the, sort of the ongoing question. If they find a, um, a Gospel of Bill, you know? And uh, it wouldn't have been Bill. It would have been some other name. Would, would, have we been missing out for the last 2,000 years on God's truth? And I think the answer would be no. There's a unity to Scripture, and there's a coherent message to Scripture that comes through in all of the different books that we have access to, even knowing that we do not have access to everything that was spoken clearly, and we don't even have access to everything that was written. So, for example, how do we know that? Paul references at least two letters in his epistles to the Corinthians that we don't have. So, first and second Corinthians are probably actually second and fourth Corinthians, if we want to be technical about the letters that Paul wrote. Are, is that a problem for us? I mean, at some level, it raises questions that we ought to think about, but we have not missed out on what's important because of those things. So, coming back to this, there are probably some people who in verse 17 see spirit of wisdom and revelation, and they might capitalize the S, but I think it's a spirit like, I think it's correct to take it as a lowercase s. Not that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, but a spirit of wisdom and revelation, wisdom that's consistent with God's wisdom, revelation that's part of what God is unfolding to His church at this particular point in time, and it says, in the knowledge of Him. So it's not, and this is where I think sometimes today there are, um, there are, there's the possibility of going wrong in how we think about this, uh, from the perspective of God's revelation was primarily concerned about making God known to His people. More so than making known points of curiosity to His people. So it's, it's, it's wisdom and revelation that's tied to things about God, not like things about necessarily how the universe functions or math formulas or all of those sorts of things that could also be true, but that's not primarily what God's doing when He's revealing Himself. Yes? That makes sense to think about it that way because they didn't have copies of all the letters. They may have had a few of them. Sure. So they needed that extra revelation to get that, as, at least as much of the message as possible. Sure. And I think we see just from the things that Paul says in the letters that are the same between all the letters, he was teaching them all the same basic message, more or less according to how long he had opportunity to stay in a particular place, but he was teaching them the same basic truths in every place that he went. So then that leads us to the other part of the question uh, on number three. How would God enlighten the Ephesians? So he says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. What does it mean to be enlightened? What's kind of standing behind that? Jonathan? Okay. Sure. Good. Uh, and like I mentioned this morning, there's this idea of 
God who caused light to shine out of darkness has caused the light to shine in our hearts in the process of salvation, but that enlightenment work of the Holy Spirit, I don't know how many times you've been reading Scripture and suddenly like the puzzle pieces all line up and you're like, oh, I didn't see how that fit together before. When that happens, what's not happening is new information being added that's not there. What's happening is you seeing better how it all fits together. And I think that kind of stands behind Paul's goal for them here. It's not like they didn't know they were Christians. It's not like they hadn't heard the gospel. But it's one thing to have begun to believe the gospel... And it's another thing for the full weight of the glory of what God has done in the gospel to fall on our souls and say, look at what God has done. I think that's the sort of thing that Paul's primarily after in his prayer. So, what three things does he want the Ephesians to know? Maybe if some of the kids wrote these down in verses 18 and 19. If not, we'll let the, uh, we'll let the adults chip in. But he says, that you will know... And then he says, yes, Braden? Yeah, the greatness of his power. Good, good. So those are the three things. The hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And we talked this morning about what those things are. So what is the hope of our calling? Yeah. And and even to be even a little bit more specific, what what so what's God's calling? What's God's calling? Okay. So it's this this work that God has accomplished where he's calling, so it's not just calling like a general call like and this is, again, there are strands of Christianity that would disagree with me on this, but I think the testimony of Scripture would say this. This is God's, what we might call His effective calling, right? It's not just standing there shouting on the street corner hoping somebody hears. It's saying, here's a bunch of you standing here, and I'm calling to you, and you're going to come from there, and you're going to come over here. Like, think about Jesus picking out His disciples, right? He picked out specific people, and He called them, and they came and followed Him. And so that's the calling. So then what's the hope connected with that? Why do we need hope connected with that? We don't know what. Right, but... Yeah, yeah, what, but what Paul's emphasizing here. Okay, good, good. So we're, we're looking forward to something, right? Because he's called us out of here, we're not only having experienced this part of it, but we're also looking forward to these other parts of it that he's going to, to unfold for us. That's the, the first Peter 1 kind of idea. So there's the hope of his calling, and then there's all these kind of phrases modifying each other, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So that we would know the riches, but not just riches like money, but riches specifically of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, so that his inheritance is the saints in glory is glorious, but what is his inheritance in the saints or among the saints? Yeah. 
So what did we say last week the inheritance is? Where we kind of land on that? In verse 11 and verse 14. Right, right. Okay, Jared? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. And so I think verse 14, when it says the redemption of God's own possession, that's looking at it from Jesus' perspective. We belong to Him, and He receives that as the inheritance, if you will, of His work on the cross, resurrection, and ascension. But then Paul is also, I think, coming at it from the other angle at a couple points in the chapter, which is we share as the thing that Jesus possesses in all of the benefits that he receives because of the work that he's done that resulted in him possessing us. And so that's why you'll look at commentaries and some of them will emphasize the church is Jesus' possession, it belongs to Jesus, which is true. And some of them will emphasize and we share in the blessings with Jesus, which is also true, because I think Paul's kind of developing both of those themes in this chapter. So... There, but, but when he said that you know the riches of this, even the fact that we have trouble expressing this to some degree points out the fact that there are, there are riches, there's depths, there's aspects of this to be pondered and explored and consider further, right, Jerry? Okay. Yeah. Right. Think back to the Old Testament. What was Esau's attitude toward his inheritance? Yeah. And what does Hebrews warn us about with regard to our inheritance? That same kind of idea. Don't throw it away. See the importance and the value and the riches and the, the extent of it. And so Paul's praying that, that God would do that kind of work. That they would not be like Esau. That they would be like, you know... Um, the early apostles who said, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to die because what God has promised me I will possess, what I do possess now, even in anticipation of the rest of it, is worth it, right? And so I think that's part of what Paul's getting at. And then that third phrase, the surpassing greatness of his power, what's the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Paul is not easy to read sometimes, so I'm not trying to make anybody feel badly. I'm just trying to make sure we think specifically about what it is. Yes? Yeah, go ahead. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so raising Jesus from the dead, and then what was the other part of it? Yeah, seated in his right hand, the ascension. Yes, sure. Yeah. And, and so Paul doesn't link it quite as clearly here as he does in Romans, because in Romans he's like, Jesus died, you've died to sin. Jesus was raised, you'll be raised to life. But the same kind of idea, right? God's power has accomplished this, is accomplishing this in you because it accomplished it in Jesus. And if he could accomplish it in Jesus, certainly he can accomplish it in you. And so then um, that kind of leads us to the next one. How can we be confident that God is going to cause the Ephesians to know him better? Be 
because of what he did with Jesus, right? So if God's already done this amazing work in and through Jesus, he certainly is going to do it in and through us because he has promised to do so. And when he says he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, um, look at ver chapter 2, verse 6. What does he say is true of us as well? Yeah. He even speaks so confidently of it that he says he has already done this, even though it's a positional thing, not an actual thing. Yeah, we're not actually in God's presence. But so, so Paul's making all these parallels between what God has done with Jesus and what God is, is and will do in and through us. And so uh, he's, he's linking those things together. So then how does the spiritual growth of the Ephesians, which I would say knowing God better in terms of the salvation He's provided as part of our spiritual growth, verses 18 and 19, how does that fit into God's overall purpose of salvation in verses 21 through 23? There's a couple different ways that we could answer this, but, but how do those two things fit together? What, what is God accomplishing with Jesus in the ascension, exaltation, whichever word you want to use. Metaphorically, he's bringing the body together. Okay. He's under the head to make the church in the life itself. Okay, good. And so there's this, there's this reality that, that Jesus is over everything in the entire universe. And then he says, even as a subset of that, Jesus is the head over the church. And then he says, and now you're part of this church, which is his body, and Jesus fills all in all. So I think he's sort of like zooming back out a little bit. The church specifically, but even further than that, the entirety of the universe is filled with the immensity of God's power. And so if God's goal is to put Jesus above everything, then what does that mean about what we do in terms of obedience to Him. Think back to verse 4 of chapter 1. What's God's goal in saving us? Not the only goal, but the goal in verse 4. That we'll be holy and blameless. And why is that important? Because we're part of Jesus' body and we're under Him. And if we're part of Jesus, He's holy and blameless, we ought to be holy and blameless. And so that's what God is accomplishing by Paul saying, I want you to know these things, and then those things start to sink in in our hearts and lives, that starts to fulfill God's purpose that we would be holy and blameless, and it's part of this whole subset of what God has done with putting Jesus over everything, and so, so we're part of God's purpose in accomplishing that. And so, I guess the only thing I would say is, as you look at that prayer, and as you look back over chapter 1, you spend a lot more than two weeks looking and thinking about all the things that are in this chapter. But, hopefully we have like a broad overview, a helpful picture of what he's saying here. So then that leads us to the application question, which is, what is different between what Paul thinks God for and what you often thank God for when you pray? This is not intended to be an accusation, just an observation that if I said, do my prayers look like Paul's prayer here at the end of the chapter? not even just in the loftiness of the language, but just in what I'm praying for, I think I'd have to say no. So what are some things that we often pray for? 
Yes. Yeah. And I think I, I, we can pray for those things without excluding what Paul's doing here, right? It's not an either or, but we sometimes treat it as an either or. Yeah, sure. Good. So, so are we as faithful to pray for the spiritual needs of people as we are their physical needs? And I'm not at all undermining the importance of those physical needs because they are real struggles in our lives. What's, what's one of the reasons that it's easier to pray for physical needs than for spiritual needs for fellow church members? Okay, it's easier to see the results. What else, Jerry? Okay, and, and that's what I'm trying to get at with this question. If we're going to pray well for people, we've got to spend time getting to know them better, right? Um, and it's uncomfortably silent in here at the moment, right? Jerry? Yeah. All right. So let's talk about that for a minute. What does it look like to, like James talks about, confessing your sin to one another, but doing so in a way that promotes spiritual growth instead of causing other people to, to stumble into the same sort of sin that you feel like you've committed this week? So make that simpler. How do you say... Pray for me about this without becoming a stumbling block to someone else. Okay, so there has to be a degree of trust, I think, too, right? Because if I feel like, and this is where one of those things that I think undermines good prayer in churches is that all churches at some point or another struggle with the issue of gossip, right? So if I'm going to be open and honest with someone and say, will you pray for me? I'm going to be really hesitant to do that if they say, will you pray for me? And then and I don't think I've ever done this, it's my goal never to do this, and then the pastor uses it as an illustration, the thing that you shared with him on Sunday morning, or you share it with someone in the church, and then someone else comes up to you and is like, so how's this going, you know? This, uh, 
and we were like, well, that wouldn't happen. But sin is insidious. It's sneaky. It, it's, we have to watch out for the... We have to be willing... So, how do I put it this way? Um, there are some secrets that cannot be kept for a variety of reasons. But on the other hand, when it's just simply... I'm being honest and open with you. This is a real spiritual struggle I'm having. And, and will you pray for me about that? There should be a level of trust that people are confident that you're praying for them about that without necessarily going and talking to three other people in the church about it. And so there has to be the investment of time to find out what's going on. There has to be a corresponding building of trust that... This is, this is between us and God, unless for some reason it has to not be, and the list of the reasons it has to not be is a pretty short list, right? You know, um, It's not just like, oh, this would be interesting to tell someone. That's, that's not one of the reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's where something where if you're on the receiving end of someone being honest and saying, will you pray for me? And as you're talking to them, you're like, this is something that I can't keep to myself. Like, just as an example, as a pastor, there's certain things that I'm legally obligated to report to the authorities if they're going on, you know? Um, and... I wish, that, I wish that there were more flexibility in some of those laws to allow for the work of the Holy Spirit. I also realize that there has been a failure to do what's right in their different circumstances in churches, in religious organizations, and so boundaries have been set, and so the reality is those rules have to be followed. But there's a big difference between those sorts of things that have to go to the authorities and something like, you know what, I've been struggling with greed. I've been, you know, I've been looking up new fishing poles on Amazon. And so will you pray that God will help me to quit being consumed by, by wanting this new thing? And if you're smirking, it's because I don't fish. My fishing poles are in a tangle in the garage, regardless. But um, we just need to be willing to say those specific sorts of things to each other. And we need to be willing to ask those questions and some of it is just having regular conversations I think about good things on Sunday mornings, Wednesdays as we encounter each other because if we're having the conversations that are like the testimony time on Sunday and Wednesday nights then it makes it easier to then have the other conversations like will you pray for me about whatever but if we're not even doing that, which I think is a little easier to share, here's a verse that encouraged me, then we're probably almost certainly not going to be ready to say, and will you pray for me about this spiritual struggle that I'm having? So, what Paul is praying for is things about their spiritual growth, not just about their physical good. Because we live in a materialistic society, we tend to pray for physical good and not spiritual growth, but sometimes it's just a practical issue of needing to be more involved with one another and more specific in recognizing that God is the one who can help us change 
So let's go before God with one another about these things. Um, the other question, and we don't have to answer it out loud, do you pray constantly for other Christians? I think this is one of these things where it is really easy to go for maybe Wednesday night to Wednesday night, maybe a couple Wednesday nights to a couple Wednesday nights, and those are the only points at which we're consistently praying for other Christians. And, and that's just something that we need to say, well, what are the excuses or reasons or obstacles that are coming up in the way of praying for other Christians? What can I do to improve that? Because I think Paul's example is consistently, I'm doing this regularly, I'm doing this constantly, I'm doing this all the time. And I think sometimes we tend to not do that. So, secondly, when Paul mentions the things he wants the Ephesians to know, is he saying just know these facts or something more? What would it look like for Paul's prayer to be answered in your life? Think about the structure of Paul's epistles. Not in every one of Paul's epistles, but in several of them. He has a doctrinal section, and then he has more of a practical section. So in Ephesians, it's 1 to 3, doctrine, 4 to 6, put it into practice. So because of that structure, we might look at what Paul's saying here and, being, and, and think he's just saying, I want you to know stuff, and if we take that passage in isolation from what the whole book is saying then we won't arrive at what I was trying to show you this morning from Ephesians 4.1, which is, and walk worthy of the Lord. Colossians, it's a much tighter development. It's within the space of a few verses. So you see the connection. But Ephesians, because we're taking it in chunks at a time, we might not see that connection. So I think there's a legitimate application to, be, to say, God wants us to change our thinking here. But if we zoom out and say in the whole book what's God's goal, it's because your thinking has changed here, it's going to impact the way that you live and all that looks like in 4 through 6 uh, of Ephesians. So, yes, God wants us to know things. Those things ought to change and develop our understanding and our thinking. The eventual goal is that they then affect how we live. Thirdly, how does knowing God's overall purpose give you confidence to do ministry? This is probably not like immediately obvious what I was getting at. So if it's not clear, tell me why it's not clear. What do we see in verse 19, the end of verse 19? I was just yeah, say, uh, because we know he's working. Okay. We can have more confidence to go out and get the gospel. Good. Okay, yeah. I mean, that's the, that's the main thing I'm getting at. If we see, look at verse 19. The working of the strength of his might, all these things that he did in connection with Christ, that Christ is put over all these things. So if Christ is put over all these things, think about the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples. Same kind of idea here, right? 
So, um, should that affect then how we do church? So we talk about the church as my church, why or why not? Okay, good. And we can say this is my church in the sense that this is the church I'm a part of. I'm not trying to say you can never say that phrase. But what sometimes happens in churches is we think of it as my church, and we think of it as like my things that I'm doing in church, and when we lose sight of the fact that it's Christ's church and we're under his authority and supposed to be doing what he wants us to do, then that then leads churches to do all sorts of things that have nothing to do with what Christ wants from the church and everything to do with what makes them happy or is fun for them or that they think people around them might like. And so there's that ongoing tension because we shouldn't do things at church to make it difficult for unbelievers to ever participate from the perspective of that they should feel unwelcome if they walk in the door. But there's always going to be the reality that what we're doing here is not primarily for people who don't know God. So if we lose that in a goal to try to get people to come into the building, sometimes, maybe even most of the time, it's because we've lost sight of this idea that it's Christ's church, we're doing what he wants, he's over it, we're under his authority, it's his message, all those sorts of things. So then this comes back to, like, how do we, what, what's, who's church for? What, what's, why do we gather for church? What's that? Yeah, fellowship. Okay. Worship. Okay. Um, if you have a chance later, go and read the, in the middle of that 1 Corinthians 14 passage. It says, when unbelievers gather, they'll have a particular perspective of God based on what they observe you doing. Not so much they're participating in it, not so much they necessarily understand everything, but we give them an impression of God by what we do when we gather. But we're not supposed to just gather, we're also supposed to go out into the world and be the church that is expressing who Jesus is, some of these truths we've seen here in chapter 1, to those that we encounter on a daily basis. So, invite people to church, certainly. But if they say no, remember that you're still part of God's church, and so they have a picture of Christ and what He's like, because they know you, even if they've never come here for a service. And so we ought to have confidence in the ministry that God has called us to do because of His mighty power. We ought to recognize that it's Christ's church and we're serving Him in it. And we ought to realize that we need to follow it according to the things He's set up because it's His church, not ours. And so as we bring all these things together, how do you pray for yourselves and other people? And does it eventually lead to change in your actions, like we'll get to eventually in chapter 4, not just change in what you think about? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these truths from your word. I pray that we would be challenged as we consider the truths of our salvation, the working of your mighty power, the glorious hope that you've called us to, the unfathomable riches of being part of your family when we have no right to be in and of ourselves, but you have shown us that graciously. Lord, help those things to overwhelm our souls this week, that we would ponder them even more, encourage one another about them, 
and rejoice in the work that you will do in and through us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.